Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18 this morning. Matthew 18, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 5 together this morning. You know, most uh, people have a desire to leave a mark on the world. I think people recognize that life is, is short and reasonably transient, and, and they desire in uh, whatever time that God gives them to leave some kind of mark on the world. They want to be remembered after they're gone. In this life, people want to be respected. People want to be well thought of. People want to be honored. We want people to, uh, to heed our counsel and our advice. These are kind of natural things. The military understands this uh, desire to um, leave a mark on the world, and it's reflected in their recruiting slogans. For example, the United States Army presently says in their recruiting slogan that join the Army and be all you can be. Or the United States Air Force, we do the impossible every day. One would have to wonder whether it makes it truly impossible or not, but... Or the United States Navy, America's Navy, a global force for good. Or the United States Marine Corps, the few, the proud, the Marines, right? People want to be part of something. And they want to be part of something that is bigger than themselves. Sports franchises have figured that out. So they sell their caps and their jerseys. People wear them. Even churches. People have a, a certain sense of, uh, of pride belonging to certain churches. They'll talk about, I, I go to such and such a church, and, and I go to such and such a church. People just have that desire within them to be part of something bigger than them. There's a deep, deep longing in the human heart for greatness, for greatness. And that's okay. That's good. The problem becomes is when we go about it in the wrong way. The problem comes when we measure greatness wrongly, when we pursue it selfishly. This morning, we're going to see from this text, Matthew 18, 1 to 5, that, that true greatness in God's economy is measured not by status, nor by privilege, but in terms of humility, in terms of humility. The prophet Isaiah writes, 750 years before Christ, in Isaiah 66 and verse 2, the prophet writes, This is the one, speaking for God, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's an amazing thought, don't you think? Humility, submission to the scriptures, draw the favorable gaze of the God of the universe. That's a pretty amazing thought. They are also essential for living together in Christian community. And we are continuing our series here from Matthew with various lessons and principles on how to live together in Christian community. We've had two so far. Beginning back in chapter 17 and beginning in verse 14 through verse 20, we noted that to live together in Christian community, we have to live by faith. Last week, the next lesson for us in verses 22 to 27 was that in order to live together in Christian community, we need to be willing to surrender our rights. We need to be willing to surrender our rights. This morning is our third lesson here from chapter 18 and, and verses 1 to 5, and the lesson is this. 
Humility is essential for greatness. Humility is essential for greatness. So as we look at the text together this morning, what I have for us is three aspects of humility that draw the favorable gaze of God. Three aspects of humility that draw the favorable gaze of God. The first occurs here in verses 1 to 3, and that is this. Our model for humility is a child. Our model is a child. Verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This event follows close on the heels with that which closed out chapter 17, which is Jesus and Peter's encounter with the uh, tax collectors. And uh, now Matthew indicates to us that the, the topic of greatness in Messiah's kingdom has come up. But it's kind of an interesting, uh, the way it comes up here, because if you put together the account of the same event or series of events in, in Mark's gospel, in Mark 9, and what Luke has to offer in Luke 9, you combine it together and you, you get a little better picture of why all of a sudden are we talking about greatness. And the, the chronology kind of works something like this. According to Mark chapter 9 and verse 34, while the disciples were journeying back to Capernaum, from their time there in Caesarea Philippi in the north, they were discussing along the way and among themselves which of them was the greatest. That's how they were occupying themselves during their, their hike. And Luke tells us in Luke 9.46 that it didn't just remain at a friendly discussion level. It uh, descended to the place of an argument. It became quite a contentious discussion as they were going back and forth with one another along the way as to which of them would be the greatest. Later, they, they gather here in a house, probably Peter's house in Capernaum, and Jesus questions them about the discussion. He, he brings the topic back up. He questions them about the discussion that they were having along the way. You know, something like, well, well, what were you guys talking about while we were walking along back there yesterday? And they're embarrassed. They're embarrassed by the discussion and, and the fact that it turned into a rather contentious argument. And, and Mark chapter 9, verse 33 says they remain silent. There's just silence in the house. Finally, someone or someones blurts out the question that had caused this contention. And, and that's what Matthew records for us here. Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Ah, now we're getting to the root of the matter, right? Now, the, the, the way this is translated for us here in the English, I think, obscures a, a little bit of the force behind the question. It could uh, well be translated as who really, who is really greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who then is, is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who, who is really greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, you might ask yourself, why, why are they so fixated on this? Why, why would they be so fixated on, on trying to figure out which of them is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I suppose one obvious answer is, is they're human. <laughs> they're human, right? And it's kind of a, a natural thing for, for sinful people to want to claw their way to the top of the heap. All right, children, or at least in the old days when I grew up, children played king of the hill, Right? where you stand on top of the mountain and you push off everyone else who tries to get to the top. So it's kind of a natural thing to do. I think it's interesting, by the way, the, the assumption that underlies this question, right? Who is really greatest in the kingdom? The, the, the assumption that underlies the question is that they're all great, right? The question that they, they want is they want Jesus to sort of choose between them, to arbitrate which among all of these great men, 
Which one is the greatest of all? That's the question. Seems silly, doesn't it? Until we think about times when we've been drawn into similar kinds of contentions. Now, culturally, they lived in a day and an age and a place where, where precedence and rank were, were built into the social fabric. Basically, your father determined your place in society. You were high-born or you were low-born, and you didn't generally move from one to the other. Where, where you were is where you were born, and that, by the way, is how much of the world even today operates. But I think also behind this is, uh, is Jesus' actions with Peter. Remember back in chapter 16, Peter ha or Jesus has publicly elevated Peter. Peter was uh, the leader and spokesman, I think, for the 12. That seems pretty incontestable. But, but Jesus seems to sort of push him even further forward there in chapter 16. So that may be sticking in the craw of a few of them. Following that, Jesus takes Peter and, and James and John with him on a, on a private camping trip up on uh, Mount Hermon, right? And, and so he sets them apart in that way too. And so that probably further stokes the fires. We know from uh, the text, Matthew 20, 20 to 28, that, that later on, James and John, you know, the other traveling partners there up on the mountain. James and John, they get their mother to come and, and approach Jesus, and they're desiring uh, the, uh, the primo seats in the kingdom when it comes, right? The left and the right hand. So there, you can tell that there's, an, there's this jockeying for position. There's this agitation going on. There's a, there's a general assumption, hey, we're all great, but let's figure out who's greatest of the great. I think it's also... Uh, uh, Likely that um, because Jerusalem is their, their end goal here, their final destination, their last six months of uh, Jesus' public ministry, uh, the trip from Capernaum, which they're there, I, I think, basically to resupply and to get ready for that trip south. Uh, you know, Jerusalem is in their crosshairs, and there's a, there's a messianic fever that's still kind of growing in the nation, and they feel it. And they kind of, you know, they've been oblivious to Jesus' repeated statements that he's going to suffer, he's going to die, and he's going to rise again. They, they somehow are not able to process that. But they do get the idea that this is the one, and, and he's going to Jerusalem, and, and if he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's the king of Israel, he's going to get crowned there. And so it's the right time to, uh, to put in your pitch to see who will be top dog when the king comes. So I think all of that is kind of running in the background behind this. But, but whatever the, the sort of the ultimate source of their contention, I think Jesus' response to them here in this, in this passage would have absolutely shocked them. This was a shock and awe response to their question. This is, this is not in any way what they would have expected from him in terms of an answer. According to Luke 9 and verse 47, Jesus knew what they were thinking in their hearts. And so he proceeds to confront them here. And he confronts them with a, with a living object lesson in verse 2. And he called a child to himself and set him before them, or more literally, in their midst. He called a child. To himself and, and set the child at his side, I think, basically, in the midst of them. The word here for child uh, indicates a, a small child, a, a, a prepubescent child, just a, a very, you know, matter of just a few years old. And he sets this child in the midst of them. Now, in the ancient world, uh, uh, the role of children was very, very different. Than, the, than what it is in our world today. And so we need, to, we need to understand this. So this whole lesson is going right over the top. I mean, we live in a youth culture. We live in a, we live in a day and an age when the, when the advertisers are in a pursuit of the youth dollar, the youth economy. And so there are many advertising campaigns that are, that are aimed exactly at young people. And, and it seems as though younger and younger and younger people 
because they realize that somehow they're able to influence buying decisions, even though they have no money of their own. And, and the way they influence uh, the, uh, the buying decisions is because parents uh, in our generation, in our day and age, have, uh, in my opinion, and you can do it there, you know, like what you like, but I, but I think that generally speaking, we have become too greatly concerned for the happiness of our children. We have, we have placed happiness as sort of a supreme goal that we're pursuing. Listen, um, parents, holiness is your goal with your children. Happiness is, is irrelevance. Okay? It's nice if you get it. If you don't, life is hard and then you die. Okay? But glory's coming by and by, so you better be holy and be ready. Okay? But in any case, this, this is the world we live in. And so this lesson here would, would sort of go over the top unless we understand. Unless we understand. The ancient world, very, very different from our own. Very different. The ancient world, uh, the child is on the lowest rung of the social hierarchy. They are the bottom of the barrel. They have no authority. They have uh, no decision-making power at all. They have no status. They have no privilege. They are both physically and socially little ones. Jesus refers to them that way in verse 6. Okay? They, are, they are, you know, of no account. They are of no account. He said a child among them, this, this insignificant, no-account individual, Verse 3, and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus introduces here in verse 3 the, the point of the object lesson. The child is, is the object for the lesson. Here he begins to introduce the, the point of the lesson, and he introduces it in a, in a very solemn way. All right, truly I say to you, do not miss this lesson. In fact, this is a life or death lesson. This is not an optional bonus question, you know, for you overachievers. This is life or death. Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean? What does he mean by that? The child is the object. And, he, and he's He's pointing to this child. I think we could kind of assume that, or he got his arm, you know, around the child kind of thing. And he's drawing out something for them to understand. He's holding up this child as, as, a, as an illustration of what one must be to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, he's not holding up this uh, child as, a, as an ideal of innocence. He's not holding up this child as, a, as the ideal of purity. He's not holding up this child as the ideal of faith. He's holding up this child as the ideal of humility, of humility of one that is unconcerned for social status or rank. That's the lesson. That's the lesson. And it becomes very clear as we move into verse 4 here in a moment or two. The disciples, Jesus says, must be converted. Literally, they must be turned. They must be turned they must be turned from their, their present conduct, their present attitude, 
or they will not even enter Messiah's kingdom, let alone be considered great or the greatest in it. They've got this assumption going that they are, they are in like Flynn and they are the greatest of the great. And now the question just becomes is which is the greatest of the great? And Jesus said, you are so far at this moment, so far away. Their, their grown-up sense of importance, of position, is putting them in, in complete antithesis and opposition to the kingdom of God. They are valuing things in the exact opposite way that God values them. People ask um, about the child. Kind of an obvious question, like, oh, whose child was it, do you think? Don't know. Peter's house, maybe Peter's child, maybe. But the text doesn't tell us. It's, it's beside the point. In fact, I think uh, it, it actually sort of uh, drives the point home for, for you and I as readers even more powerfully. The fact that this child is obscure and remains in obscurity is sort of exactly the point of the whole thing. The child has no name. The child has no status. It doesn't matter whose kid it is. It doesn't matter whether it's a boy or a girl. None of that matters. That's exactly the point. It's exactly the point. Beloved, the first, the first aspect of, of humility here is that our model is a child. Our model is a child. Secondly, humility requires honest self-appraisal. Humility requires honest self-appraisal, verse 4. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That confirms to us we're on the right track here, that the, that the point of the matter is the humility of the child, not any other characteristic. This is a child that's a nobody. It's a nobody. Here in, uh, in verse 4, he, he, is, uh, he is widening uh, the point, I think. Whoever then... And he's pointing out for us a critical difference between the child and what he expects of his disciples. Follow me on this. The child is a nobody because just that's the way it is. You're a child. You're a nobody. You have no status. You have no rights. You have no authority. Nobody cares what your opinion is. You don't get to say what you're going to do, when you're going to go to bed, when you're going to get up, what you're going to eat. Okay? You have no rights. You're a nobody. That's just what it means to be a child. You know, hey, someday you'll grow up and things will change. But for now, that's who you are. But for Jesus' disciples, see, they have to make a decision. They're grown up. Right? They've got, they've got, all, I got rights. I got status. I've been, I've been working on this image for, you know, years. I got respect. I got ambitions. And Jesus is saying to them, you want into the kingdom of heaven? You need to turn your back on that. You need to turn away from that. You need to, to lose your status. You need to give up your privileges. You need to deliberately choose to practice self-denial and humble yourself. And humble yourself. You're not a child. Children get no choice. You're an adult. You have to choose. 
You have to choose. And so whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's probably worth uh, pointing out here the the difference between uh, the word humility as you and I generally understand it in the English and and, and the, the meaning of it in Greek. This is, a, this is a point I think worth making. For, for you and I, humility, as it comes to us in the English language, relates primarily to a state of mind. You know, we're, we're kind of humble in our mind. And I'm trying to achieve humility here, you know, and as soon as I start to think I'm humble, I get proud of being humble kind of thing, right? But, but, but we tend to look at it that way. We sort of, we sort of disconnect it from activity, and we, and we think of it in the realm of, of just sort of a characteristic, an ethereal kind of thing. But the, the Greek adjective translated humility here, goes, goes, it has a mental status aspect, but it goes beyond that. And it, and it speaks to, a, to, an, to, um, to uh, the idea of, of humbling yourself, of actually the opposite of being exalted. So it's an active kind of idea. It would be closer, I think, to, the, to our English word humiliate. Humiliate. Whoever then humiliates himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Ugh. Right? Humiliate. We don't like that word. Humiliate. Not a friendly word. Right? Humble, we're Christians, you know, we kind of like that. But humiliate? Eh, not so much. But actually, when we start talking in that kind of language, we're, we're far closer to the concept that Jesus is communicating here, a concept that he says is so important that if you get it wrong, you fail it, you will not make it into the kingdom of heaven at all. This is a serious deal. So, so to humble yourself like a child, according to Jesus, it doesn't mean to, to gain the, the mental virtue of humility. Rather, it means to, to seek and to accept uh, the low social status symbolized by a child. A child who lives in a world in which they have no right of self-determination at all. A child that, that must submit to the, to the rule of the adults because everyone knows that adults know best. That's what's required. Jesus is talking here about the practice of lowliness. The practice of lowliness. I think we can see this most clearly illustrated in Philippians chapter 2. So I'm going to turn you over there to, to Philippians chapter 2. Where Paul, the apostle Paul, speaks about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and uses the incarnation as a basis for his appeal for humility among the believers in the church at Philippi. Now, beloved, I cannot think of a more radical loss of status than for the second person of the triune God, the Son of God, to leave the throne room of glory and to come to earth and to take to himself human flesh and to live as a bondservant, to suffer and to die. There is no more radical loss of status than that. None. Paul says here in, in verse 8, but being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. There's the same Greek word. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Listen, when Jesus 
came into, into space and time through the incarnation, he did not somehow gain the, the moral virtue of humility. It's not like that Jesus was not humble before, but, but once, he, you know, once he became a man, see, then he became humble. That would be a blasphemous notion. Jesus was, is, and always will be the picture of humility. But he demonstrated, he demonstrated the character already present when he took to himself human flesh. This is what Jesus is talking about. Back to Matthew 18. Whoever then humbles himself as this child. It takes action. He is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, verse 4. He is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I think this is an interesting paradox. I hope you, uh, hope you see the paradox as well. Entrance into the kingdom of heaven requires humility. Without it, you won't get in. Isn't that what Jesus says here in verse 3, right? Unless you humble yourself as this child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Then in verse 4, he says that greatness in the kingdom of heaven requires humility. It requires humility. And so I think that's kind of a, a, an interesting paradox because uh, we can conclude by that, that that whoever enters the kingdom of heaven is great. Everyone who enters the kingdom of heaven is great. And because everyone who enters the kingdom of heaven is great, therefore, no one is great. No one is great. It's kind of akin, I think, to, to the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Do you ever think about that? The last shall be first and the first shall be last. If the last is first and the first is last, that means everybody gets in at the same time. If the entrance to the kingdom is humility and humility is greatness in the kingdom, therefore everyone who gets in is great and therefore no one is great. What that means, in other words, is that all of our worldly notions about status, about privilege, about prestige, I mean, it all goes out the window when it comes to Messiah's kingdom. Those categories don't apply. And the reason they don't apply is, is simply this. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. No societal privilege or family connection makes a bit of difference with God. God is not a respecter of persons. He could care less who your father is. It doesn't help. No human achievement, no status, no privilege. I heard someone say one time a long, long time ago at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. The ground is level. Nobody gets a leg up. Nobody has a, you know, an advance notice. A privileged position. Beloved, listen, if there is no place in the kingdom of God for these categories, then there is no place in the church of Jesus Christ for these categories either. Now that flips it on its head. That flips it on its head. Listen, if we're going to humble ourselves, we're going to humble ourselves, and then we need to realize where are we clamoring or exerting our, ourselves to, to achieve or maintain our status and our privilege in the eyes of others. We need to do some honest self-appraisal. Let me offer a few possibilities for you. If you were to go to the doctor, they might order a series of tests. Consider these tests. 
We'll do a spiritual physical. How's that? Just a few questions. Jesus says in Luke chapter 14 and verses 7 to 11, drawing from Proverbs, he says, don't take the first seat at the banquet. Do not take the seat of honor at the banquet. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 5, that, that we are, del- are to deliberately go lower than we think we deserve. Deliberately go lower than we think we deserve. Don't take the first seat. Go lower than the seat you think you deserve. That's a pretty good test, don't you think? You can kind of walk with that, and, and as you go into a social situation, you can sort of evaluate yourself. Where am, I, where am I going in this thing? I think you could, uh, you could apply it here, too. I, I think this is maybe a weak sauce application, but at least it gets you started. Um, where do you choose to sit on Sunday morning in here? Do you have your own seat? Is your name scratched into the wood in front of you? Did you pay for it? Is someone sitting in your seat? Just a simple kind of thing, right? But it's a beginning to sort of evaluate. When I walk into this room at 10.15 on Sunday morning, what am I thinking about? Am I thinking about my status, my privilege, my, my special seat? Or am I thinking about other people? Here's another one. Another part of the blood test. You know, there's a battery of blood tests, right? Avoid developing a taste for uh, people's praise. Do not condition your palate to, to enjoy people's praise. The Proverbs talk about this. They said honey is good, but, but be careful that you don't grow to like it. Okay? Praise is good, but be careful you don't develop a taste for it. How do we do that? Well, we can seek to serve other people in unnoticed ways. Seek to serve in unnoticed ways. And so, so what you ask yourself is you find, find yourself serving somewhere, some fashion, and, and, and nobody is acknowledging it. Nobody even knows about it. How do you feel inside? You're kind of agitated. You wish somebody would, you know, hey, call you out. Put a star on your forehead. Bring you to the front of the class and point out that, you know, my child is honor student at such and such a school. And whatever. I've got to be careful. I'll get myself in trouble, right? Why do you serve? What are you serving for? I mean, here's the third for you, um, just sort of this idea of honest appraisal. Do you, do you defer to other people's opinions and preferences? Do you generally defer to other people's opinions and preferences, or do you insist on your own? It's a good approach. You married couples. How do you approach it in marriage? Do you defer to one another's opinions and preferences, or do you insist upon your rights, your status? Philippians 2, 3, and 4 kind of speak to that, that whole issue. Now, these are just a few ways to, to kind of um, begin some honest self-appraisal. So the first aspect of humility is that it's modeled as a child. Secondly, it requires honest self-appraisal. Third, humility is active, not passive. Humility is active, not passive. Verse 5, and whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So Jesus is moving here. He's kind of moving the lesson forward, and he's, and he's moving it forward, and he's, he's looking at another example, another example here. And, and the basic issue he's getting at here is how do we treat each other now? Not just how do we, you know, relate to the world, but, but how do we treat each other in, in the body? When he says, uh, whoever receives one such child, you, you can, you can kind of understand here that he is moving beyond this child. This, this child has served its purpose. The object lesson has been fulfilled. And, and so it's not about the child anymore. In fact, as we move on in this text, it's not about the kid anymore. Kid served his purpose, go sit down. We're widening this out. 
And basically what he's, what he's doing is he's, he's widening it out to, to the category of people whom the child represents. Whoever receives, one who has been humiliated in my name receives me. In other words, how do you disciples treat each other? How do you treat each other? Simply put, do, do we show favoritism towards those in the church who have a perceived level of, of social or economic status? Do we seek out fellowship with, with others who are in the same economic and, and social standing that we find ourselves, or, or do we avoid them? Do we avoid the people who are, you know, they're not, they're not like us? Is our, is our approach to, to fellowship within the body cliquish? You know, um, us for and no more kind of approach, right? I mean, these are the kind of issues that this necessarily brings up. One writer, in commenting on this, he says, quote, It is the habit of the world to serve the great and the popular, but for the follower of Jesus, the priority must be to receive and welcome the world's little people. Little people. Welcoming Jesus' disciples is in and of itself an act of humility. The reason it's so, I think, is because our social status in the eyes of the world is not, you know, advanced by doing that. You want to move up in business, you want to move up in, in social networking and society and so forth, you know, you've got to move with the, the movers and the shakers, right? But Jesus is saying we, we, we need to extend ourselves to, to, the, to the lowly, to the, to the people of non-status, the people that are not going to benefit us. Okay, a couple of practical suggestions maybe. How about this? How about... Um, how about ending your conversation? Here's the scenario. You're in Sunday school, Sunday morning. You're standing there in the corner and you're talking to your friend and, and you know, you're really having a great time catching up on the week and on the corner of your eye you see someone new walk into the room. How about ending your conversation and walking across the room and engaging that new person in a conversation? What do you think about that idea? How about, about you know, kind of welcoming them in? That would, that would require you to, to go lower to do that. Or how about uh, seeking out a new face on Sunday morning in the, in the worship service and introducing yourself to them? A lot of churches, you know, they make you stand up and turn around and introduce yourself to people that you don't care about. Right? How about this? How about if we really did care about them? And then we wouldn't have to be made to stand up and turn around and pretend. How about showing somebody where the nursery is rather than just pointing? All right? It's over there. How about, may I take you? This, you know, they're kind of simple things, but, but it seems to me like they'd be good first steps. How about inviting somebody in your home and serving them a meal and finding out about them? Like, who are you? What has God been doing in your life? That would require me to care about you. How about going out of my way to change my schedule to help out someone? Maybe somebody's moving or maybe somebody whose uh, car's broken down, they need a ride to the mechanic or, you know, there's a million things. Now, we would do that for our friends, right? We would quickly, easily do that. For my friends, boy, I'd drop everything and I'd do it for them. But, but here's the question. 
when I do it for all the children in the church? People that are, that are not my friends, people that I don't consider my close network, though I care about them. Just because we share the common life of Christ together. I mean, the Bible says we're brothers and sisters. Sometimes we act like a dysfunctional family. This, uh, by the way, all falls under the, um, the same truly I say to you in verse 3. Now, my applications don't. I'll readily admit that. But the principle does. The principle does. This is a serious deal. Jesus says the reality of the matter is when we welcome someone who has made themselves low for the sake of the kingdom of God, we, in effect, welcome the king himself. That's what he says here in verse 5. Whoever receives one such humiliated person in my name receives me. And I think we can conversely say that a failure to rightly receive one who has of humble status for the sake of the kingdom is to fail to receive the king himself. It's to refuse him. It's to refuse him. In Matthew 25, Jesus will come back to this topic when he talks about the sheep and the goat judgment. He will come back to it again. Beloved, I get it. Everything that Jesus is requiring here goes against our natural inclinations. Isn't that right? This, this goes against the natural inclination of my heart. I want to be valued. I want to be respected. I want to be honored. I want to be obeyed. Kiss the ring, you know, kind of thing. I mean, when I'm honest... It takes a work of the Spirit of God to, to transform the human soul. There is, this is not a self-help message. This is not a I got to do it kind of message. You know, pull myself up by my bootstraps and do these things, and then I'm good to go in the kingdom of God. You cannot do this. You must do this, and you cannot do it. So where does that leave you? Exactly where God wants you. Throwing yourself upon him in mercy and grace. Calling out to him. That Christ would, whose death would be counted as, as your death. That your, that your guilt and your sin would be, would be atoned for on his cross. That his spirit who now resides within you would empower you and change you. Because you can't do it on your own. God saves us, and, and, and then he begins a work of grace in us that, that carries out through a lifetime, a lifetime. Listen, young people, I'm going to clue you in here. Old people struggle with this just as much as young people. Sin is no respecter of age. This is a, this is a, this is a fight in the human soul that you cannot win. But Christ can and will win it for you and through you. The change will come slowly, to be sure. But you will change. You will change. If you fill your heart and mind prayerfully with the word of God, you begin to act in response to the conviction of the Spirit of God. Listen, if, if the Spirit of God is convicting you this morning from this message, wherever that might be and whatever that conviction might relate to, you need to, you need to act on it. You need to act on it. Don't stuff it away. Begin to practice small baby steps of obedience. Build a pattern in your life. Beloved, may God grant us together as a group of believers to grow in grace 
in this really, really important area. Let's pray. Our Father, it's not hard for us to identify with the disciples in their contentious arguments about who is greatest. Oh, we can look at them and we can say, how crass to voice such things, and we would never do that. And yet, Father, often we could find ourselves drawn into similar kinds of disputes. Disputes that find their origin in the same basic sinful human attitude of desiring to be exalted. And our Father, you have made it very clear here through the words of your Son, recorded here by Matthew for us, that we must go lower, that we must intentionally turn away from all the worldly understandings of success and greatness that our culture continues to bombard us with and, and which we even in, inadvertently drink in. Our Father, we confess we cannot do this on our own. We, we do not have the strength or the power or even the desire. But we are helpless and hopeless without you. Let us flee to the cross of Jesus Christ. Let us trust what he has done. Let us believe that his illustration in, in humbling himself and the result and exaltation that is his, that we can and, and must follow that same trajectory and that your spirit desires it of us and, and will help us in pursuit of it. May you enable us to humble ourselves like a child. And Father, may you enable this, this community of believers, this local fellowship, this Bible-believing church to develop a habit and a pattern of serving others rather than ourselves. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.